So how can we husband the diversity of Chinese medicine in a way that doesn't at the same time or by doing so constrain the vitality that comes from this diversity? I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I've been thinking about uncertainty. It's one of those things that we as humans, with our curious gift of self-reflection, constantly live with. Either at the back of our minds when life is smoothly rolling along, or front and center as the nonstop 24-hour newsertainment industry cranks out yet one more thing that will help to drive the sales of the anti-anxiety medication that's the sponsor of their show. On a bad day, uncertainty will leave us paralyzed with indecisive fear. And on a good day, it reminds us that life is curiously fluid, that we can't help but have one foot deep in mystery, and that things just might go our way in an unexpectedly good fashion. The gift of uncertainty is that it gives us an opportunity to explore the sacred ordinary. It makes us a little sharper when we can't sleepwalk our way through the current situation. The benefit of uncertainty is that it opens us up to enlivening questions. It delivers a zen-stick whack of realization that answers have an expiration date, that life is fleeting, that our schedules and routines often do more to insulate us than open us up to deeper connection. Uncertainty can quiet you down, open your ears, sometimes allows the mind to become very, very still when you recognize your maps of the world aren't helpful. Sometimes we get a glimpse of the world beyond our stories of our understanding. It can be deeply unsettling. And what we do with that unsettledness shows us something of the person that we are. But especially in a moment like this one here in the late winter of 2020, with a looming pandemic that shows us just how profoundly connected we are to one another, when we see that medicine can't be untangled from politics, economics, or belief, it's these Title change slices of time that remind us of our fragility, that we exist for a glimmering moment, that everything is given and then taken away. Uncertainty reminds us that we are endlessly broken and endlessly renewed. It keeps us awake to the terrible wonder of this world, that we can have so much and yet feel such a lack, that we've inherited a world with a to do list of problems that will give us meaningful work every day of our lives should we decide to say yes to it. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation with Volker Scheid on the power of plurality and how we can have conversations with doctors across the span of time, culture, and language. Volker brings his perspective as an anthropologist, historian, and practitioner of Chinese medicine for nearly 40 years. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological 
to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I sure did enjoy this conversation with Volker Scheid, and I suspect you're going to find listening to this to be an hour well spent. Let's get into it now. Volker Scheid, welcome to Geological. Thanks for having me. It's uh, nice to see you. I mean, I realize that people that are listening to this don't get the visuals. We get a little visual when we record it because of the software. The last time we saw each other was... Back in, I think, 2007 or eight in uh, Mancha. Mancha. You had uh, just published a book on the uh, Mancha clan of doctors. Long time ago, huh? But uh, good memories. You know, it seems like a long time, but, you know, one of the interesting things I find about the work that you do, I mean, there's a very clinical side that you have that you, that you bring out and you share with us. I've been to some classes of yours. There's also this sort of historical, anthropological, sociological way that you have of looking not just at medicine, but the context that that medicine is embedded in. And The uh, Currents of Tradition, which is a book you did on the Monka clan, it, it really, I mean, it very much goes into that. And it reminds me so much of often the issues that we face here in the modern world with questions of like, well, who has the authentic medicine and who's connected to who and, and what what is lineage if you have one and how do you know you're actually a part of it? And who's got the, I'm using air quotes here, the real medicine and who's like making stuff up. But of course, we're also making stuff up based on things that we've learned. I mean, that's how we contribute to a lineage. And so one of the things that I'm, that I'm particularly curious about is how our social environment, how our cultural environment so deeply influences how we think about and practice medicine. Because, you know, we often hear this thing about, oh, Chinese medicine, it's been around 2,000 years, they must know what they're talking about. But I know for myself as a person in the modern age, I think it's impossible for me to understand someone as recent as the Ming Qing dynasty. How could I really possibly understand what their life was? If, if, even you don't have to go back to the Qing dynasty, you know, you can go back, uh, I mean, as, as we are both getting older, maybe it happens to you. When I, when I teach now sometimes and the audience is a bit younger, I have certain reference points in my head, like for instance, C.G. Jung. Uh, younger people don't, you know, he was an important person for our generation. Everybody knew him, yes? 
you of can't course. assume anymore that young people know who C.G. Jung was. Yes. Okay. So it only takes one generation for things to change. Yeah. Okay. Or uh, I don't know whether that is the same for you, but even um, the problems that people come to me with now, they're not mm -hmm. the same that they, they used to be like 40 years ago when I first started. I mean, of course, some of them are the same. Yeah. But patients are different. The way they relate to me are different. Uh, how you have to relate to them is different. So I think you don't have to go back to the Ming and Qing. <laughs> it changes much more quickly. So it changes within our lifetime is what yes. I'm hearing you say. Yes. As for understanding the Ming and Qing, you know, I think we can, I, I would say that's, it depends what you mean by understanding. I think it's on a certain level impossible uh, because if you, if you look at the education, a kind of like a scholarly Ming Qing dynasty doctor would have had, um, you know, starting reading kind of all kinds of literatures uh, from when they were seven, eight years old, memorizing all kinds of stuff, having an incredible good memory to put everything into their head, growing up in a culture of referencing, you know, two, almost by then 2000 years of kind of literature. Uh, across lots of different domains and then doing that in a kind of like a, a scholarly way partly to show off and partly that's what they have that's how they talked uh, for us to even get our head around that and and know what they really referencing there I, I, I would say that's we get the idea but the depth to you know how they stack up these ideas and how they reference these to other things around in their cultural world uh, I, I, I don't think that's possible for us anymore. I remember living in Beijing and coming across uh, some different doctors, and there was one guy who, I mean, it was almost like a party trick. He could he could recite the Shanghan, he could pull any line out of the Shanghan Lun and bang, he could just rattle it off. And, and he was very proud of this, and he, and he had some status for doing this. But they wouldn't do that just with the Shanghan. They would do that with the Neijing and all the medical books. But they would all they do that with all Confucian classics and Taoist stuff and literature and poems and military art and warfare. And, uh, you know, they just give like a four character quote and everybody will know where that comes from. But they turn the four character quote on its head. So uh, nowadays with Google, I can, with a lot of effort, uh, you know, spending a time, a, a day on a paragraph, you can maybe reconstruct some of those references yeah but to have it at your fingertips well. so different from today's world right because today's world is based on search right yeah. if you don't know it oh well it, it doesn't matter that i don't know it i can search for it Sur and the problem that i see with this we can search for something we can get it but we have no context and we haven't gone through that process like where you do if you've memorized something or if you've deeply learned it, where it's like it's embedded in your neurology, it's embedded in your experience, it's it's encoded in your brain. Yeah, it's, it's just a different way to relate to the you know to the written things, to the unwritten things. To um, but I think we still can have a conversation with these people. Yeah, uh, even if we don't totally understand them, it's the same way I can have a conversation with a teenager. Even you know. A teenager's language I don't necessarily understand anymore totally. I have a teenager living in my house, so I, yeah. I understand this. It's, uh, it's, we can communicate, yeah? That's the important thing. We, we can communicate. And what's, what's fascinating to me is there's some language that I hear this particular teenager using that's exactly the same language I used at that age. Right. And then there's other thoughts and other language and other things, and it's like, yeah. wow, this is like a foreign country. Yeah. So maybe that's how it is with us in our medicine too. There's things that we can get because it's similar and there's other things that are very hard to understand. Yeah. So I think going back to your very first question. So I think the idea that we can in any way, uh, I mean, this idea of authenticity in the sense of, you know, recapturing totally what somebody did, you know, at another place, another time. I think that's, that's just an illusion, yeah, okay? Mm. We can have a conversation with these people and this conversation can be more or less productive. 
And that's, I think, if you look at it like that, that then changes the whole engagement because you're not looking for truth or authenticity or whatever you want to call it, but you're looking at how can I make that conversation with these? Because you can have a conversation with people who are 2,000 years dead, yeah? You can, because they left written words, yes, okay? Yes, and there's people that have commented on those written words and commented on the commentaries. And we, I mean, the fascinating thing about Chinese medicine is we do have a conversation yeah, across the centuries. Exactly. Yeah. So we have a conversation across time. Like you have a conversation across, for us having grown up in the West, it's also a conversation across cultures. So we can mm -hmm. have these conversations and they can be more or less productive. Uh, but I would think, as I said, going and trying to cover some, recover some authentic thing and being able to say this is more authentic than that. Um, of course, you can say, yeah, you can say this is more close to the point. But being somebody 50 years ago, 200 years ago, 2000 years ago, that's just not possible. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm struck by what we were talking about earlier in this conversation that the people that you saw roughly 40 years ago when you were first starting, the kinds of things they came in with, the way they wanted to be treated, the way that they spoke, the way that, that patients and practitioners interacted is different now than it was then. Yeah. And, and of course, that would be you know going backwards as well. One of the things that I have sort of chewed on with Chinese medicine is that there are these experiences from the past, but they only really hold water for me if they can somehow become alive in the present. Is there a way that I can take that influence of something from the past and make and help it make sense of what I'm doing in the present? And you know, holding to some kind of uh, orthodoxy just because it's orthodox never seemed to make much sense. That's the eternal problem in Chinese medicine. You know, if, if you if you read the literature through the ages, I mean, that's I would say one of the recurrent problematics is on the one hand, you have to uh, you have to have some faith in and faithfulness to uh, what you would call the tradition. Yes, okay, um, and this tradition could be uh, you know could be written text or it is written text, but it could also be kind of like the people that you have studied with, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other, and, and if you don't have that faith and faithfulness, then you have got nowhere to start from. And uh, who are you to change something that, you know, has been around for such a long time and that people have, you know, who are you? But at the same time, things do change, yes? Okay, and they have always changed. And particularly, things fail. Uh, I mean, the other thing that, uh, you know, we often talk about oh, Chinese medicine is so fantastic. It can do this and that and the other. Of course it can. But if you, again, if you listen to the, if, if, if you read the literature, then I think as many stories about the successes of Chinese medicine, there are as many stories about the failures. Yes. Okay. And almost any doctor, I mean, like one of the typical genres, uh, you know, kind of like for a doctor to write in his foreword is, you know, Oh, I was ill and I had this, and then I went to this doctor and he's completely screwed me up and uh, and there's nobody who can knows the Shanghan anymore or the other way around. You know, it's kind of like oh my my parents died, my children died, uh, and thousands of people around me died. You know, this treatment doesn't work. You know, why doesn't it work? Yes, and then we have to engage with the. I mean, medicine is like that. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And we have to engage with that failure. And again, we can engage with the failure productively or less productively, I would say. Yeah. yeah. This for me is one of the really big questions. Uh, and, and it's the question of how do we engage productively with failure? Because we're going to find so much of it in our work. There's a lot of getting it wrong on the way to getting it right. So I think again, uh, something you came, you mentioned at the beginning. I think there's the typical way for most clinicians to look at it is look at themselves. So it's always, you know, what can what can I do to maybe have more success next time, or what, what was it that I did wrong? But I think for me, um, having a kind of like a, the perspective of a historian, 
or of an anthropologist, you know, like a cross-cultural perspective, is that you see uh, two things. A, that often this failure is not an individual failure, but it can be kind of like more the failure of models, of ways of thinking, etc. Um, so it's not always a responsibility on you or on the patient. Um, but I think also you can see how have other people at other moments in time dealt with this problematic and what is the kind of, so Chinese medicine I think is full of uh, possible solutions to this problematic. Yes. Uh, we often think, uh, we, which has got something to do with us Westerners, our mindset, but also obviously it's got something to do with that. We are, you know, we only doing this for one or two generations. So we are kind of only skin deep in, in the whole thing. But to most of these problems, or most of the solutions that we are suggesting, I mean, they have been suggested already like several times over <laughs> in the history of Chinese medicine, yeah? Okay, so I think uh, maybe the first thing we should do is when we, when we encounter these difficulties, just look at, you know, what, what are the solutions offered to us? And, and if these solutions are valid, then we can learn from them. Or, but maybe, maybe, maybe there comes a point where we can also contribute to uh, contribute to the ongoing story of of solving these problems. Yes. Well, I, I, I we're actually in the midst of something like that right now here in uh, as we're having this conversation, February of 2020. The coronavirus is not just in Wuhan, China. It's spreading all over the world and, and in increasing ways, according to the last thing that I looked at. And so there's, of course, a lot of concern about this thing. And uh, recently I, I talked with a doctor in China and he was, he was very specific with his idea. Yeah, I heard that interview. You did. Okay. So then, yeah. uh, you know, for those that hadn't listened to it, he's very clear that it, this isn't really a Shanghai thing and it's not really a Wen Bing thing. This is, this is an epidemic illness and it has to do with cold and it has to do with dampness and toxin. Mm -hmm. And, and of course we had, you know, this is not, the first time to the rodeo for the Chinese with these kinds of things. And so no. he was, he was very much speaking about it as you need to look at it and, and differentiate what it is you're looking at. At the same time, I've received emails from various places where it's like, okay, here's a listing. These are the herbs to protect yourself from the coronavirus. These are the herbs for the first stage. These are the herbs for the second stage, very much a protocolized, you know, very Western way of looking at things. And so, you know, here we are right now in this moment with Chinese medicine, having this opportunity to really use it and to hopefully glean something that will be helpful to us from people that have faced this before. But again, if you want to use it, uh, that's what you're know, coming back to what we said earlier. In order to use it, you have to be really familiar with it. Yes. With, you know, the, maybe the approaches or the, I think understanding the history and, and clearly the, the doctor that you were talking with, he uh, is quite au fait with the history. Uh, you know, you have some understanding of what went before, what failed and why did it fail and uh, what, how did new, new, new approaches develop, yes? Uh, and uh, unless, you do, unless you know that, how can you? The other problem is, of course, if you have some kind of uh, ideological commitment to know, you know, like I've seen stuff on the internet, you know, or, you know, it's cold, it must be Shanghai, or it's, it's, it, it can never be, uh, you know, it, it, why are they treating it like a Wen Bing, you know, they're crazy, you know, they don't understand it. But, so very often this comes out of some kind of ideological commitment rather than a hands on experience with the problem. Mm -hmm. everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang qi to body, mind and spirit. 
I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, this gets into, again, I'm, I'm going to reference your work because it has opened up in my mind the idea that our medicine is not just what we do in clinic treating patients. There's also this deep social context that we're all embedded in, and that social context really calls the tune on a lot of the dances. So if we are a XYZ type practitioner, it's like, well, I just do XYZ, and, and you're, you're very married to that uh, for your self-identity and for your marketing and for your, and for your social group and how you understand the world. I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm saying we're human beings, and this is kind. This is part of how we operate. We have this deep social interaction with each other that really cannot be, at least in my mind, it can't be teased apart from the actual work that we do. The actual work happens in this social context. I'd, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about how we can deal with that influence, both in ways that might help us and, and recognize where it might be holding us back. You know, if you, if you if you train as a historian or a or a social scientist or a humanities scholar, I mean that's particularly if you train like this in uh, Anglo-Saxon context in English-speaking world. I mean, you really learn to understand how um, you know what people do is shaped by the by the social, historical, economic context in which they operate. Yes, and that very often. I mean, the, the, the role they play as individuals is, is much, much smaller as we would attribute to them as, as kind of like great social heroes or whatever, yeah, okay. However, if you look at the history as a clinician, uh, where you're not trained in that, I mean, there's always a tendency to, to read that history very, very differently, yes. I mean, usually there's a history of great heroes, yes, okay. Zhang Jungjing, the four great doctors of the Jin Yuan dynasty, the mm. fantastic heroes of the Ming, and then blah blah blah, the Beijing yeah. Sir Da Ming Yi, etc. Yeah, <laughs> it goes <laughs> on and on and on and on. <laughs> and uh, but we also tell ourselves a history, but the history that practitioners tell each other, as you say, there has got much more to do with uh, creating an identity for themselves, marketing themselves. Um, hagiography like celebrating ourselves yes okay and and making the medicine fit into what we do like i give you two typical examples um uh, have you have you read the work of miranda brown i have not no okay so she's wrote, written a wonderful book on it's called the art of medicine in early china and in this book she shows you know how the lineage of early early medical heroes in the history of Chinese medicine gets constructed. And uh, the second to last chapter is on Zhang Zhongjing. Yes. Okay. And she shows, you know, how in a very readable way. So it's very, actually, uh, I would recommend that book to everybody. So how the, the idea of who Zhang Zhongjing is, you know, changes fundamentally uh, in the Song dynasty. You know, so before the Song, he's this kind of, magician yes a kind of like a, he, he he can do tricks and he's a magician he can do all kind of stuff like ma like many other doctors around him and then in the Sung dynasty because the doctors become the scholars become doctors and the world of scholarly scholarship traditional scholarship and confucian scholarship and medicine they become much closer aligned with each other so Zhang Jungjin gets re refashioned as a kind of like a good Confucian scholar, yes, who takes care of his clan and who is a bit more an intellectual kind of guy, etc., etc. Yeah, okay. So that's, uh, that's a typical example. Another example that I can give to you, which I stumbled across by chance, um, like, like many things in my life. Um, you know, we all say Chinese medicine is holistic, yes, okay. Mm. Um, that's, that's part of our marketing, right? 
Yeah, well, that's, but we, I think we deep, deeply believe we are, it's not just part of our marketing. I think it's also part of our identity. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. This makes us different from biomedicine, blah, 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 yes. blah. Now, now, if you look at, there's nothing in this world which hasn't got a history. So there, there's a history to this idea of holism, uh, what holism is and why people want to be holistic and who wants to be holistic, et cetera, et cetera. And I've, I've written on this, so I don't have to tell the whole story here, but it really, you can trace it that it comes to, uh, in, at least in the, in the modern understanding of holism, it has got very much to do with problems that Germany went through in the 18th century and uh, tried to find solutions to. And then the Germans went to America and ended up in the West Coast in California and, uh, you know, set up Ezelin and the hippies and influenced Chinese medicine there. And another stream of German thinking, you know, Marx, Lenin went to China, mm -hmm. Engels and influenced for very particular political reasons, uh, you know, these people who constructed Chinese medicine in what we nowadays call TCM in the 1950s and 60s. For them, it became really, really useful to market Chinese medicine as holistic, two very different ideas of holism, one a bit more religious, esoteric, the other one really political. But that's how Chinese medicine became holistic, not because it's in the Yellow Emperor. Yes, In the Yellow Emperor, there are ideas that we can interpret to be holistic. Yes, okay. We can read them as holistic if we want to. If we want to, yes. We can take and interpret it in whatever suits us, yes. But the Yellow Emperor never said Chinese medicine is holistic, yes. Neither did Zhang Zhongjing or anybody else. But people in the 1950s and 60s whether in China or the United States or in Germany, they say Chinese medicine is holistic and that's the, one of the most fundamental aspects of what Chinese medicine is. And that's how in turn then we, not because of what's in the medicine, but it's a, a kind of like a wider social field and the needs of people in this, uh, in, in a certain cultural political context. Yeah. Okay. And then we, we managed to align Chinese medicine to that, yes? Okay, so that's, a, that's in a way a different approach that you would take to this as a historian rather than as a practitioner. Does that make sense, yeah? Because for a practitioner, it might feel very, very uncomfortable to have your identity questioned in this way, you know, to say, oh, I, be I believe Chinese medicine is holistic, and I say, well, actually, maybe it's not so holistic as you think it is because in many ways, it's not holistic, yeah, okay, so for instance, if you think Chinese medicine has got a lot to do with, um, like, like you were saying before, in, 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 uh, in uh, dealing with uh, toxins, yes, you, you just get rid of the toxin, yeah, okay, you, you couldn't care necessarily about, f first you deal with the toxin, you, you may do that in a holistic concept, but sometimes you just don't care, you just purge them and then see what happens, what the next kind of presentation is, yeah? The, um, the thing about our self-identity is, is something I think about a lot. That, and especially with your example here of holism, because we want to be holistic or we think, we think holism is important, we're going to take, because this is sort of the flavor of our times, we're going to take this other stuff and we're going to read ourselves into it. I think there's an aspect of us reading ourselves into the into the literature. And, and then there's the other side, which is letting the literature sort of flow into us. But I, I know for myself, it, it's hard to hold both of those perspectives at the same time. It's hard to, for me to see through my own filters that I, that I look through. Uh, yes, it is. But I think it's also a matter of training. Yeah. Okay. So if you trained as a historian then you start to see history as a process in which you know it's it just becomes part of the way you see the world yes you see people are not the agents people are maybe much less agents than we would than we would like to be mm -hmm. but as a practitioner you have to be an agent yes you have to make a clinical decision do i do this do i do that yes it's, it's very very important yeah okay yeah so i personally i feel very comfortable with both of that, yes, but I think it's because I have had this uh, journey in my life where, where that has become part of who I am, yes, but I know from my engagement with practitioners, 
when you present them with uh, a, a different kind of view, then they very often feel challenged because they feel what you're actually challenging is their identity. Yes. I think any time, I think this is endemic to being a human being. When our identity gets challenged, it's it's very easy to become defensive around that, especially if we're very attached to certain things or it's a deep part of our own construct of who we are. And, and yet, um, sometimes having that broken up a bit will let us be more helpful to other people. 100%, yes. I mean, of, of course, we have to, like I said before, we, we have to hold on to something. And um, if we don't have faith uh, and faithfulness, you know, how, how there's no platform. But at the same time, there's a difference between having faith and become a fundamentalist. Yes, does that make sense? Yes, you can you can open up your faith to new experiences and change it a bit. And uh, and some people can change it more, and some people less. But that's not the. I think there's no right or wrong way, but I think there are better and worse ways. And I think it's really important to make this distinction between better and worse. Because if you don't make that distinction, then, you know, you can't just say everything is equally valid. You know, I read the Neijing like this, and you read the Neijing like that, and he reads the Neijing like that. And that's just, yeah, okay, there's a three people, different views. You know, I, I, I think that character means that, no, there are ways of how we can make better readings and worse readings. Yes, like you can have a better treatment and a worse treatment. You never know whether it was the best treatment around or there could have been other things that might have been even better. But very clearly, there are ways and methodologies for whether whether it's uh, practicing acupuncture or dealing with uh, Chinese medicine as a, as, a, as a living tradition that I think are better and worse. Yes, I've heard it said that there's more than one way to do it right, but there are certainly plenty of ways you can do it wrong. It's really important to be able to know which one you're working with. I'd like to turn to this idea of metapractice. I know you're going to be here in the United States here in a few weeks at the uh, Shenlong Societies Conference. You're going to be speaking about this. There's some papers uh, that you have generously shared with me. There's some upcoming articles that you'll have coming out. I'd like to get into this this idea of metapractice, this way of that you describe as being able to look at various aspects of the tradition and various aspects of our learning in ways that allow us to bring things together and and, and be inclusive. Yeah, so this comes really out of my uh, own engagement with Chinese medicine or Asian medicine over the last 40 years. So like you yourself uh, and probably everybody, you know, we... By now, I think it's pretty obvious that Chinese medicine is very diverse. Yeah, when when I first studied, that wasn't accepted. This diversity, you know, like it was very clear there were a right way and everything else had to be wrong. Yeah, okay. But now I think we have come to the point where we know, you know, there's a Tung style and a Tang style and a Korean acupuncture and Japanese acupuncture, and they all have a certain kind of validity. And we know there is a broad spectrum of Chinese medicine. Yes, okay. Same for herbal medicine. But the question then is, how do I choose and how do I relate myself to this uh, diversity? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you can, again, I mean, people will like will have different needs and their minds and work in different ways. Yes. Okay. So you maybe you know like I started with uh, you know the Worsley Five Elements style a long, long time ago, and how I got there was really chance. You know, it wasn't based on any kind of informed decision. And nowadays people, I suppose in America, when they go through, they have to go through some school to get some license and the schools have a kind of like more or less core curriculum that they have to teach. So everybody who learns Chinese medicine learns a certain kind of thing. But how did this core curriculum get put together? That is not because, you know, God given that was put together by certain people for certain reasons. We don't know whether that's the best way to do that or not. So for me, the question that I ask myself, um, how can we, and I, I, I try to put it in a kind of like one sentence, mm. yeah, okay. So how can we husband the diversity of Chinese medicine in a way that doesn't at the same time or by doing so constrain the vitality that comes from this diversity? 
so for instance, if we say, okay, one of the ways we, we resolve this conundrum of diversity by saying, okay, there are authentic ways of doing Chinese medicine and then there are non-authentic ways of doing Chinese medicine. Yes, okay. That constraint, you know, because the, the, what are the criteria that you use to do it authentically and non-authentically? Yes, okay. Usually they are, have nothing to do with some, as I said before, b- with something being authentic and non-authentic, they have to do with made up stories about where something comes from, yes? Most lineage stories are made up, yeah? Okay, not just in medicine, but I mean, any anthropology will know that, yes? Okay, lineage stories are made up. Well, I mean, they're kind of myths in a way, aren't they? They have to be bigger than life to have some sustainability. Or you could have other ways, you know, like say uh, TCM, what we call TCM, that's a product of, you know, the state getting involved in this diversity and trying to sort it out in a let's call it bureaucratic way yeah okay and there are various ways uh, where we uh, there's if, if if you look at it uh, through history and time there are various ways of how we could sort out that diversity and plurality now the danger of course is each time you try to do that like for instance if you create a, a synthesis then you're ruling out certain things. How how do you know that what you've ruled out was okay to rule out? And how do you know that it wasn't okay to rule out? And how do you know, you know, like, okay, I'm Dr. X, I make my synthesis of everything, but 20 years later, Dr. Y comes and he makes his synthesis of everything. Does it make sense? Yeah, so how do we differentiate between that synthesis and that synthesis? So what I mean by, by meta practice is to to actually constructively think about this process of accepting the diversity and knowing that we have to somehow manage it because you know you can't use five different treatment protocols in the same clinical session you have to use one yeah okay you have to make a decision yeah okay or like what you're saying before if there's this coronavirus you know do we treat it like this or do we treat it like that it's a decision we have to make however if we constrain this kind of process, if, if we constrain that diversity too much, then we will lose the flexibility that really comes from it. You know, I'm, I'm very convinced that one of the reasons that Chinese medicine is still around after 2000 years is because it's so diverse, yes? Okay, so therefore it has been able to do one thing for one person. You know, Zhang Zhengjing could be the magician for the Tang Dynasty guys, and he could be the scholar for the Song Dynasty guys. You know, that's... <laughs> Yeah, and he was for early modern Chinese. He was more like a empirical scientist. Yeah, okay. So he he can be different things to different people, and that's what makes his work relevant over different peers. But I want to give you a very concrete example that I thought about. Yes, because I listened to quite a few of your podcasts, and one of the things that uh, always comes up are the Liu Jing in some way. You know, oh, six yeah, that information. Yeah, that's. Seems to be like a, something that you're really interested well, in. Well, it is something I'm really interested in. It's something that uh, I remember at the beginning of learning Chinese medicine, I was like, what the hell is this stuff? And then as time goes on, I thought I understood more about it. And and as I get further into it, it in some ways it seems very simple, and yet it seems very deep at the same time. It's just one of these aspects of our medicine that constantly is bringing up new questions for me. Yeah. So I've looked in, you know, I, I feel the very same as you. Yeah. Okay. I think everybody does, maybe, hopefully, if they have an open mind. But I think currently, and this is not like historically, but currently, there are at least 30 different ways of interpreting this concept in circulation in China. So I'm not interested in which one is true and which one is false. But I think amongst the 30, some are certainly better and some are certainly worse than others, yes? Okay, so to give you a, um, give you my opinion, yeah, okay? So for instance, one of the things, I don't know if you observe that in your own clinical practice, so you might have problems in, in a channel, you know, like say the gallbladder channel. And if you have a problem in a gallbladder channel, that doesn't have to be a Shaoyang pattern. The problem might actually get better with treating it as a Taiyang problem or it might be getting better as a Shaoyin problem or whatever, yes, okay? But it doesn't have to be uh, a Shaoyang thing. So therefore, in clinical practice, 
the relationship between the channel and whatever this Liu Jing means, it's kind of tenuous. It's not rigid. Does that make sense? Yes, it can sometimes be there and sometimes it's not there. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. And for me, sometimes it's also, it's there, but it's not connected in the way that I think it is. And so it's asking me to see what other relationship might be operating here. So therefore, you know, this idea that the Liu Jing are the channels, yeah, okay, comes up at a very particular time in the history of Chinese mm. medicine, yes? It comes up in the Sung Dynasty, yeah, okay? Where people try to create a synthesis between, you know, acupuncture text, um, the Huang Di Neijing and all that classical corpus and the Shanghan, yeah, okay? And, and because these things have the same names, so one of the things that they do is they obviously think they are the same things. Yes. Okay. So the, the, the Liu Jing are, of course, the channels. Yeah. Okay. But because it's a clinical link between those things, rather vague, I would say. Yeah. Okay. What you actually get in the late Ming and early Qing, you get a reaction against this, yes? Okay, so, and this reaction comes for various, I mean, I, I could go into this more detail, but one of the clear points of criticism is these guys in the Sung, they totally got it wrong. Those Jing are not channels, yes? They have nothing to do with the channel. They maybe have only a tenuous link with channels. We're really talking about something very different here, yeah? Okay, so these guys in the Ming early Qings, they think of those Liu Jing in a very different way, like uh, maybe territories in the body, yeah, okay? Um, mm -hmm. Where you could have in the Taiyang territory, you could have many different channels go through this, yes? Okay, so you could have the Shaoyang channel also go through the territory of the Taiyang, yeah? Okay, so clinically, that makes more sense to me. So what I said before, you know, very clearly, therefore, I'm in favor. I'm, 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 I'm much more, I think these guys, their understanding seems to me make more clinical sense than the understanding of the other people. Previous understanding is not, you can play around with it, but in clinically practice is not validated all the time. Yeah. Okay. So can, I mean, you can take that even further, you know, like you can say, you know, what do we mean by when we think of what the, uh, Taiyang is. So I've gotten rid of the channel thing. Now I think of it as a territory. Yeah. Okay. So what kind of territory is that? Yes. Okay. So it's clearly a boundary territory because it's on the outside. Yes. Okay. So it's a, it's a boundary territory. But in our body, we have different boundaries. So we have boundaries, not just in the skin. We have boundaries also, say, in the nasal, in the mucous membranes, in the nose, or in the digestive system. So when you start reading, you know, what some of those Wenbing people, and, and interestingly, all these people are from the same town or from very closely related towns. So when you actually look at what uh, these Wenbing people do, you know, they say Shanghan and Wenbing is not different in terms of understanding the body or understanding disease. The only difference is that 
we are dealing with different type of pathogens. Some pathogens go via the skin, other pathogens go via the nose and the mouth. But actually, our understanding of the disease process and what we have to do is the same. But if the pathogen changes, maybe you have to use a slightly different treatment strategy. Exactly the same this doctor from Chengdu was saying. He was saying for a damp pathogen, in order to expel it, you still expel it to the outside if it's very superficial, but you need to use it slightly different, you know, less heating, more aromatic acrid herbs, yes? If it's a cold mm -hmm. pathogen, you also push it to the outside, but you can use like more heating acrid uh, herbs, but the the intention of the treatment is still the same. So you, if, if you stick with this idea, I hope you can follow me, then you can actually see that, you know, what these Wenbing people are doing is kind of like they, they're providing us with a clearer understanding of what this Tai Yang thing might be. Can you follow me? So I think if I think of it through like that, then I can start to A, put different readings of both the body and the classical literature into conversation with each other. But I can also say, okay, here there's a very productive conversation going on and it seems to be progressive. And that is what I mean by meta practice. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, a kind of awareness of that diversity, but as a diversity that, you know, can be husbanded. We don't have to have 30 understandings of Jing because some of those understandings of Jing are really not so good. Some are better. Chinese medicine, because it's so backward orientated, it finds it very difficult. It hasn't gotten a mechanism like in the same way that science has yes to get rid of old stuff once you're famous in chinese medicine you're famous for all times yes that's <laughs> it's a privilege yes i remember dr wang chu yi talking about various methods that you'll find them in books you'll find them in museums they're part of the corpus of chinese medicine nobody uses them how do you know we don't use them? Or how do you know not to use them? Well, doctors, they tried it for a while, but no one's really talked about it or used it for a long time. It's still in the medicine because it's a portion of the history and our medicine throws nothing away. But you have to know, and I'm not talking about cherry picking here, but you have to know, and I love your word husbandry, you have to use some kind of discernment yeah. to get through what's useful, what's not, how things might be useful. I love this. I, I so appreciate your uh, this conversation we're having on, on the, the Ching right now because it, it makes sense to me as well to think about them as territories. And, and in thinking about like the Shang Han Lun perspective and the Wen Bing perspective, we're speaking about the same territory, but under different conditions. And when you have a certain condition, oh, this is a useful way of working with it. Under a, uh, under a different condition, if we understand the first one, the second one now makes more sense. Yeah. But it's still the same territory. Yeah. Okay. It's still so, the same territory. So you, but the invader is different, you know? If you mm -hmm. deal with the, you know, like the Mongols on their horses, that's different than you deal with Russians on their tanks, yes? Okay, or, or terrorists who come from inside, yes? Okay. Terrorists from inside or, or spies from the outside. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, okay. So yes. anyway, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about the Western Academy in its, you know, there's lots of things wrong with the Western Academy at this moment in time, but when it works, it's a very socially productive way of, doing this husbanding. Does it make sense? Because it's not just one person, but ideally every scientist is engaged in this communal conversations and is prepared to have their own ideas shot down. And, uh, and I very much, I, I think that is something we could really learn from the field of enlightenment science. Let's call it like that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, a productive way of husbanding. And then, and again, that's, I think, a com uh, is then a new conversation because you're bringing into conjunction enlightenment science with Chinese medicine, yeah? which was, by the way, you know, it's nothing new that was happening in the late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah, Nothing new. 
How so? How's it nothing new? Because they were already, you know, like in late 19th, early 20th century, Chinese doctors, Japanese doctors, you know, they were becoming aware of uh, that there was something called science, which did things in a different way. I mean, of course, they had a very pe peculiar understanding of science. That's why they had late 19th, early 20th century understanding of science, a very Darwinist understanding of science, which doesn't exist, you know, Well, we have gone beyond that. We have worked out that you can think of science in more productive ways. But maybe our understanding will also be exchanged. But anyway, these people did that very much in Japan, in Korea, but also in, in China, what we call nowadays the uh, the, the the current of convergence, you know, like the people who would put Western and Chinese thinking together to... I, I think we call it integrative medicine these days. But that is different than they did. Yes. Okay. Modern integrative medicine is different than what these people did. Mm -hmm. how, how are they different? Well, integrative medicine, in my understanding, is totally dominated by biomed. It's not a conversation. It's dictated by biomedical agendas. It, it's not a conversation means you have to have a conversation amongst equals. Yes. Okay. This is like, we know how the world looks and maybe we can harvest something from your field that makes, that is useful for us. But ultimately... It's us who are setting the, you know, the terms of the conversation, the institutions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a conversation. No, that's a... It's more like colonization, isn't Colonization it? or exploitation, mm -hmm. yeah? Okay. Mm -hmm. And these people that were doing the more convergent thinking in Japan and in China... I mean, they were doing it individualist, yeah? So, I mean, they could do it on their own terms and... Uh, And if you read, you know, it's just, to me, it's some of the, it's, it's very, very fascinating what they were doing because they had an open mind. They came up with mm -hmm. uh, really, really interesting things. Uh, there are some interesting papers around. I don't know if you read Sean Lay's paper. This is a very good example also for how our, our imagination is always shaped by the times that we live in. Uh, Sean Lay, who's a historian of early modern China in Taiwan, he wrote a very beautiful paper on why the Qiji, the Qi dynamic, uh, became such an important topic in late 19th century. And his argument is, is because these people encountered the steam engine. So they translated the steam engine into the Qiji. I could see how that would happen, right? And then, of course, these kind of inventions get forgotten. And we think, you know, this is like a 2,000-year-old thing. No, it's a late 19th century thing to think sure. about the body in body very similar to a machine. Well, we do the same thing now, right? I mean, we, we call the brain a computer. Yeah. The heart's a pump. Exactly. And Chinese imagined it in in their way. Yeah. Okay. So that made sense, you know, not just to the bodily worlds, their social worlds. Uh, one of the most beautiful things I came across is, um, do you know why the heart is empty? When somebody's dead, you cut it open, the heart is empty. You know, in Chinese medicine, we say the heart needs to be shu, empty. When your mind, heart, mind, when it's shu, then, then everything is okay. And, and we usually take very kind of like esoteric, philosophical theories to understand it. But do you know why some of these people thought the heart has to be shu, empty? Because uh, if it's always filled, it's congested, it can't do its work? No, because, you know, the heart is the mind. And this is one of the things I love about Chinese language is that heart, mind, same, it's like same thing. So in the, the mind operates by having these li, which are kind of like patterns or coherences or mm -hmm. ideas about the world, yes? And they are stored in the heart. And the heart has to be empty so it can store them. Can you follow that? So if the heart is empty, it can take the patterning and coherence of the mind. No, the heart is the mind. Don't. This is like we are in the 12th, 13th century now, yes? Don't think of brain, mind. The heart is know, the mind, it's, yeah? It, it's, it's so, okay, Volker, as, as a concept, I get it. And yet in reality, it's so, it's like I am constantly reminding myself that these are not separate. And But it's really important, these lead, these conceptions we have of the world, they're also material. They are not just ideas, they are material. 
And this material, but they have a kind of like an intangible materiality. Yes. Okay. And this intangible materiality mm -hmm. needs to be stored in the empty spaces of the heart. So the heart needs to be shoe. The reason the heart needs to be shoe, of course, it's also a mental state of tranquility and Yeah, does it make sense? Yes. And when it, the mind is tranquil, then actually we can store the right conceptions. But it's actually at the same time a material kind of event. Yeah. Makes sense? I'm following, but don't ask me to articulate it back. You know, sometimes you hear something and you go, mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. I can't quite repeat it back, but I can catch the flavor of, of yeah. where this is going. D to me, Lee is, one of, is another one of these fascinating and curious ideas that there's this patterning that runs through things and it, it very much influences the material realm of itself. It's kind of material, but it's also kind of not. I mean that you need to talk with people who are more au fait with the history of Chinese thought than I am. But of course, you know, these are not, there's not just one idea about The relationship between Li and the world, and particularly between Li and Qi. Yeah. Okay. So this has got like its own very complicated history and very long history. There's not just one. This problem of diversity and we, how we can husband that. I think that's a problem of Chinese thinking, but I think it's a problem for the world as such. So to me, I think, or maybe I, I would like to make two important points. So I think this project of meta practice that I have in mind has two further dimensions. Yes. Okay. So one is one is a very clinical dimension. How can we use this diversity to become better clinicians? Yeah. Okay. Both individually, but also as a community of practitioners through a certain kind of dialogical engagement with it, with each other and with the tradition. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is. Of course, this has got something to do with how do we perceive the world, yes? Why do we have this diversity? I would argue, you know, like many people that I encounter in the realm of Chinese medicine, but not just in the realm of Chinese medicine, everywhere, they think beyond the world, there is kind of, you know, very platonic way. There is, a, there is some kind of truth or substance or some underlying reality. And if we can get to that underlying reality, then, we, then we've done it, yes? Okay, so I would argue maybe it is there, but I think human beings can never grasp it. So for human beings, there are always multiple worlds. Inconceivable mm. for us not to have multiple worlds, yeah? Okay, and I think if you have this kind of conception of how the world is, then the, the discourse of what we want to do really changes away from truth or false, authentic, non-authentic to better or worse in a given context. So I think that's really important for me. And then I think there's a third dimension, which is a political dimension. We touched on this a few times already, that medicine always takes place in a particular context. And you mentioned this kind of, uh, you know, people say, oh, I'm, I'm this pie or I'm that pie or I belong to this lineage or that lineage or this is authentic and that is not authentic. So another thing that you do as a historian or as an anthropologist, what's happening in the domain of Chinese medicine, you cannot detach that from what's going on in the wider world around us. So I think one of the things that I'm seeing in Chinese medicine is this, at the moment is the very same kind of identity politics that I'm seeing in the world around us at large. Yeah. And I don't like that identity politics. I think this identity politics is really, really bad for us as human beings. Yeah. And I'm, I have had to realize in my own life, it's too late for me to make the world a better place other than through my engagement with Chinese medicine. So it's a very small world, but I think if we can try to get away from identity politics in the domain of Chinese medicine, you know, maybe some little things can make a contribution to, you know, if, if it works one way around, that the identity politics in the wider world is affecting what we are doing, then maybe it can also work the other way around. If we stop identity politics in 
the world of Chinese medicine, maybe that can ripple somewhere else. Yeah, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Yeah, maybe it's just like my deluded fantasy, but it's one dimension of what meta practice is for me. Well, we often talk about this in, right? I often hear people talk about this with Chinese medicine that there's a, you know, a microcosm and a macrocosm. There's heaven and there's earth. And, and these two things in many ways reflect each other. And, and it's us as Jen, you know, in the middle that create that conduit, that create that connection. And so it sounds like a worthwhile experiment to see if, if we can clean up our own house in a way and see if that ripples out into the world. So it's a great hypothesis, you know, and like any natural scientist, uh, I suspect you're as happy to get a yes or a no to your, to your inquiry. It's the inquiry that's the uh, important thing. You have to be a bit of an idealist and an utopian, I think. Or at least that's what I am. I, I suspect we all want to see the world be a better place for us having passed through it. That's just my guess. Volker, I could go on for another hour or two, but I know that you've got somewhere to go, and, and this seems like a reasonable place to wind it down for the moment. Maybe, uh, maybe you'll come back and join me another day, and we can go take a deeper dive into Lee or maybe bring a colleague or two along on that exploration. That would be fun. Um, anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind it down for today? Well, thanks for having the chat with me. It was very enjoyable. Thanks for giving me a bit of space to, to do this. Very enjoyable. I hope uh, the people who listen to it uh, find it rewarding of the hour they put into uh, listening. And uh, thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much, Volker. Okay. Take care. We're just seeing you at uh, Shenlong here in a couple of weeks. Okay. Looking forward to that. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Geological. If you've listened this far in, clearly you're a hashtag geological nerd. So for you diehards, I have a small ask that will take three minutes of your time. I've had a lot of feedback on postcards, in my email, and in conversations in person. And what I'm hearing is that y'all appreciate geological because you feel more connected to our Chinese medicine community and to the medicine itself. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.